Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, John Wertheim here. It is this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast. We are a few days away from Roland Garros from the fall pumpkin-scented 2020 French Open played uh, at a strange time of year amid strange conditions, but we have our third major nonetheless. So this uh, this week we preview the French Open with Chanda Rubin. Why Chanda? Because she is a former top 10 player, former quarter finalist, multiple times at Roland Garros, but uh, most of all, she is a, a partner in crime, a colleague, and she and I will be uh, working the desk for Tennis Channel at the 2020 French Open. That starts Sunday at 5 a.m. Eastern, but uh, Tennis Channel has you covered first ball to last, and I will uh, be assigned, I have the good fortune to be assigned to work with Chanda. So in advance of our uh, two weeks together, we figured we'd do a little Roland Garros 2020 chit-chat. So uh, here she is shortly before departing from the great state of Louisiana. Here is uh, the lovely Chanda Rubin. I'm sort of struggling where to begin. Why don't we go, before we even talk names, why don't we just like, what are you looking for? It's, it's, it's the fall, it's COVID, it's crazy times, it's a little bit of crowd. Yeah. Like before we even talk names, what are you looking for? You know, I think we kind of thought as we got further into the pandemic, beyond the pandemic, better in the pandemic, whatever you want to call it, I think we all kind of thought things would get clearer and simpler and it doesn't seem to be the case <laughs> you know the open the u.s open rolled around and everybody's kind of wondering what is going to happen how is this going to take place you know and and it ended up being great it ended up being an incredible event and you know a lot of things went right and it was a huge effort and then now you come to the to roland garros i mean not even a few weeks later barely a few weeks later and it seems even more complicated. Like, shouldn't this be getting easier? It's kind of what I feel. And it doesn't seem like it is. And we know the challenges that running these huge events uh, entail, but it's just still a lot of uncertainty. And, and that's pretty much, I think, where a lot of people are. Um, no, and I, I think uh, every day brings a new adventure, too. I think, I think you're right, though. I mean, the other thing is, and I want to ask you, as someone who's done this dozens of times, when, when we talk about the transition to clay and going from hardcore to clay, I mean, what does that mean for a player? I mean, what, we, we talk about that sort of uh, casually about the, the transition, but what, is, what does that entail and what are you going to be looking for in terms of one surface to the other? It's... You know, it's strange thinking about that now. In normal times, that would have meant, you know, playing a requisite number of clay court events, or at least getting a handful, you know, three or four, ideally, matches under your belt on clay. And there would have been a lot 
easier, a lot better transition. Obviously, Wimbledon normally is, is pretty close, but there's a little more time now in between. And, you know, players often, if they aren't great on grass, they're getting quickly onto the clay and they're just getting their, getting their legs underneath them. And it's been the norm. Now, there's almost no transition time from the hard courts to the clay. You know, you're dealing with traveling and, and you know, making sure you have those issues. Um, taken care of so the tennis almost becomes kind of second fiddle it, and it's a strange thing I think for a lot of players you know it's less about kind of getting ready for the clay and it's more about just getting ready to be on a different continent getting ready to you know try to start another major tournament that where another one just ended a few weeks ago you know trying to manage mentally and emotionally um maybe more than the physical side of it. Um, I think, I think that's a really good point. I mean, the other thing I've heard is that fall clay and October clay isn't going to be May and June clay and that, uh, right. keep an eye on the conditions. So, yeah, I think we, I mean, we've never had Roland Garros happen at this time of the year. It's going to be completely different in terms of the, the temperature, the, um, you know, just the climate. Uh, obviously the time of year, all of that. I mean, it, it's, it's going to play differently. I'm curious to see how, how it's going to change, how big of a change it will be. We also have the roof now on Chatrier. Um, so that adds a new element uh, as well. So there's a lot of changes that will, players are, are having to deal with uh, in terms of the surface and the actual venue um, that they would not have dealt with in, in previous years. So yeah, I think that's certainly a part of it. Crazy times. All right, let's, you know, speaking <laughs> of crazy, this occurred to me like two minutes ago when I was looking at the seeds. So stick, stick with me here, but is it possible there is a bigger favorite on the women's side than on the men's side? Um, I'll keep going. No, I, mean, wow. I think like, like that's Holop, a heavy duty thought, John. Think what? about think about the role the role Holop's been on. It's it's Clay. She's a former champion. She wins Rome, and I feel like between you know Novak inching closer, Dominic Team winning a major, and Nadal looking a little rusty in Rome, I I am almost at the point where it, and I, I ask this as a question: Is is it possible Holop is a bigger favorite than Rafa? Is that too much? I think that's too much. <laughs> I mean, I think it's a bold thought. I think it's a bold thought, but I don't know. I mean, you know, it's interesting, though, because on the men's side, you feel like Rafa maybe isn't quite as big of a favorite. Like, it's just that little bit of, of difference than in maybe, you know, previous years. And I guess it's a combination of Rome and, and how things went, what we saw from him there, the fact that he hasn't been able to play as much tennis as he normally would have been playing coming into Roland Garros. You know, he's he's a guy that gets going and, and gets into his play. The more reps he gets, the more matches, the more, you know, reps under pressure. And, and he thrives in those situations. So he hasn't had that. Um, a lot of players haven't, but it has been a staple of, of Nadal's game. So yeah, he doesn't feel like he's as big of a favorite. And then you have Djokovic, who just seems to be like Gumby. I mean, just responding, adjusting, making it happen on every surface, even when he's not playing his best, which he didn't in Rome, and still got through um, that that event, holding up the trophy. So yeah, I think, you know, you got to kind of give some some respect on the clay now to a couple other players and, and you mentioned team coming off of his first major and he's been that the guy sort of the heir apparent in previous years to Nadal he's got to be feeling pretty good coming into to this year's Roland Garros if that's any indication how he pulled through in New York um I want to go back to what you said about it. let's let's do the men we'll just run through it and then I, I mean honestly I think the women is probably more textured and more interesting but you mentioned Djokovic and Gumby and his responsiveness. And I think that's great. I'll give you another example of responsiveness. How many players do you think could go to a tournament as the favorite, hit a woman in the throat with a ball, get defaulted, lose a quarter million dollars, and 10 days later win the next big tournament on the calendar? Um, I, I thought that Rome win was sort of weird, weirdly underrated given uh, everything he's been through in the last three or four weeks. Yeah, I mean... <sighs> 
it's hard to imagine the mindset that Djokovic would have been in after the U.S. Open with how that ended, with getting defaulted, and just, you know, to see who ended up winning and how the final went. I mean, he's got to be looking at every match afterwards and still just pulling his hair out, kicking himself a little bit. Um, and But to, to put all that aside and literally just switch tracks and compartmentalize it, I don't know how long it took. I don't know what it required for him to do so, but that was a pretty incredible effort um, from someone who clearly, you know, with the U.S. Open, how, showed how much it meant to him. And so, I mean, what is this guy? Is he just a machine? Like, is it just, does nothing matter? Is it ego? Is it just, he's that good? Like, it could be maybe all of those, but it was pretty, it, it's a pretty incredible um, result when you consider everything surrounding it. Um, if you're picking a favorite though, it sounds like you and I, you're, you, you still like Ruff. I mean, those, those numbers are a joke. You, we still, you know, still it's it hard. Just from a respect basis, it's hard to go away from Ruff. Right. I mean, you know, of course, you maybe wouldn't be as surprised this year if it's, Djokovic or if it's Dominic team, but it's hard to, to go against Rafa in these circumstances. I'm with you. Um, any, anyone outside those three that you realistically uh, would be looking at? Hmm. Not really. <laughs> I I'm, can't I'm think. Thinking, uh, how about this? How, how about Medvedev has never won a match at Roland Garros? So that's okay. That's surprising. I knew Clay wasn't his, his jam um, as of yet, but he has not won a match. Um, How many has he played? He's played uh, three, three first rounders and lost them all. Wow. And, um, yeah. What, what about, um, so it strikes me there are two, there are two guys sort of voyeuristically everybody wants to see. One of them is how's Zverev going to respond to, serving for a major and, and failing to close the door and then Sitsipas and, and the drama that he brings with him from New York and then from Rome. Mm. Um, what, what else on the men's side are you looking for? We've talked about sort of the transition, you know, to three out of five. We, part of why we look at Nadal as so dominant is because it's so tough to beat him three out of five on the red clay. I think certainly it'll be more of a test kind of going to the, the to the three out of five on clay without maybe the requisite number of clay matches. I'm curious to see how the, the men's draw, how the bodies hold up, because I think that will be maybe a bigger test than it was even in New York um, with that transition. So, you know, who's, who's going to kind of weather the storm, um, you know, the early stages, you know, could somebody like a, you know, Bautista Agut, who, who certainly has shown he can create some noise, create, you know, some damage, um, particularly if you get somebody like a Djokovic, you know, um, on this. So I'm kind of curious to see who who's going to upset kind of the, the the balance, so to speak, on a on a surface that's been, you know, pretty pretty reliable. Well, let me ask you too. It, it strikes me that Nadal, especially, and and Djokovic as well, and probably team they they know where they're going to be playing. That now has a roof, so they don't have to worry about scheduling and rain delays. I mean, that, that Dominic team Djokovic match from last year that spanned two days, that's not going to happen anymore. How much of an advantage is it to the, to the stars? They know the dimensions of the court, but also they know that there's not going to be a rain out. And if they're first on at 11, they're first on at 11. How much of an advantage do you think that gives them? I think, yeah, it's, it's tremendous for any major like this. And, and now with Roland Garros having the roof, you know, not having those uncertainties, I think that always favors the top players a little bit more, certainly. And, you know, we talk about everybody having to adjust to, you know, sort of a new, just a new look, a new feel. You know, that is the case across the board, but, you know, historically and most often, you know, your top players are the best at adjusting and the best at kind of finding their game, even when things are a little off and getting to that level. So I think for all of those reasons, it's definitely going to favor um, those top players more. Maybe we don't see as quite as much drama um, in some of those matches because of it. I think that would certainly be the expectation. And, 
you know, the tournament should just kind of go along smoothly in terms of your, your main court. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the fans are going to be interesting, but no, I think you're right. For the first time ever, we're going to have a, a fluid schedule because if it starts raining the way it can rain in uh, Paris in the fall, we'll, we'll be okay there. What about, um, what about the women? Is anyone, anyone beaten Holop? I think there's some players. Yeah, you know, I, I like, though, I like how she's been looking. You know, she seems also with her approach, um, you know, just mentally, she seems very, very comfortable. You know, it's hard to imagine on the on the red clay, someone like Svitolina, who has shown the flashes on it. You know, she has a shot, certainly. Um, but it's hard to see her rising up in on the big stage, on red clay, where Halep has been so comfortable and having foregone the, the U.S. Open so she could prepare, so she could be ready, I think she's going to feel like she deserves it. I think she'll feel like she, you know, has put in the, the time and the effort to do well on this surface. And, you know, we've got a couple of noticeable absences uh, already, you know, this year. So I think that's definitely going to play into Halep's, uh, you know, her mindset, certainly. Um, could be some, could be a couple of hiccups there, a couple of tough opponents, depending on how the draw shapes up. But yeah, she's, she's definitely the favorite up there. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. That's one of the favorites. You mentioned the, uh, you mentioned the absences. I, I got a crazy one for you. You ready? Yes. Of the last seven majors played, only two women's champs are going to be in Paris. So you have, you know, Osaka's won three of them. She's not there. Barty's not there. Andrescu not there. And, and, right. Kenan, and Kenan is coming off a love and love loss in her last match. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, well, I want to ask you about that too. But, but first, I mean, are, are, players, are players human beings? I mean, the, the players look at the draws as much as the casual fans do. You think Holop knows some pretty big names not on the board? Yeah, I think definitely. I mean, you know who's not coming. You know, you know who's not going to be there. And, you know, that has already been calculated into the mindset, into the thinking. With that being said, it's still not, you know, just open season. You know, there's still, you know, a lot of good players. There are still some, some challenges in the draw. But you're very much aware as, as one of the, the favorites, as one of the top players, you, you are so much aware of, you know, who's not there. You wonder where uh, Karolina Pliskova is going to be after having to retire, um, you know, in, in her match. You know, is she going to be a factor? She's sort of been, um, you know, knocking on the door in terms of, of being considered a favorite on clay. Um, it's still been a challenging surface for her. But, yeah, I, I wonder, you know, who else might be missing that we don't know of right now? <laughs> really? You think uh, in the next few days we may have some news? Who, who knows? I mean, it's crazy times. Right. And also, who, who shows up in what headspace? Um, speaking of that, take us in the mind of a player. If, if, you're, if you're coaching Sonia Kennan, you know, she, she won a major in January. She's was the second seed at the Open. Mm -hmm. She's coming to a major, coming off a love and love loss. What, apart from, uh, you know, maybe, maybe you need to – another voice in addition to your father. What, um, what, what do you tell a player? I mean, what, what's sort of the mentality of a, a top player who's coming off just a brutal loss like that? You know, I, I think it's, it's one match, number one. So you kind of have to, you know, take it, you know, in, in perspective. It was a loss to a double major champion um, who has been playing fantastic tennis. So, you know, you take it in, in that space as well. Um, and I think also just for Kenan, though, um, you know, this is, these are tricky times, you know, sort of for, for any player just trying to navigate moving up the ranks, you know, the additional expectation, all of those things that come with it, but also trying to navigate their, their personal lives, trying to navigate their personal growth. 
Um, I think we saw a little bit of that in Osaka last year, some of what she was trying to work through and, um, and, and just keep growing. Uh, and it's not easy, especially in the spotlight. Um, it's hard to know everything that goes on. I cannot imagine having my father as my coach and that being full time. So look, let's <laughs> cut her a little slack here on some of it. Um, but it's just, it, these are challenging situations that, you know, for a player like Kenny, she hasn't been in before. And, you know, trying to figure it all out and where she needs to land and where she wants to land, the space she wants to be in. I mean, that's kind of a personal call. And you've just got to go through some of the, the tough stuff. Um, and But with that being said, I think she is incredibly tough mentally. Um, she's shown us her grit and her fight. And I think, you know, just from that attitude, she's going to do okay getting through, um, you know, that type of loss. And look, she's got the French Open almost immediately to look forward to. So that's the best case scenario to try to get over a loss like that. That was you you and I didn't prepare. We didn't like man, I feel like someone ought to clip that off and uh and give that to her. That's very <laughs> that's very sensible. Uh, no, and I, you make a lot of good points too. I mean she's she's losing to an informed player. It's one day at the office. There's a lot of crazy swirling ambient chaos anyway. Um very well done. That was, uh, you got a future in coaching. Um, you got you know to help me. Yeah, you don't <laughs> TV is enough drama. Um, you know what? You, uh, you brought this up. Quick sidebar, because I had the exact same feeling. I remember when I first started covering tennis, it was, you know, I was in my 20s and I kept thinking, like, I didn't want to be in the same state as my parents. The idea of being 23, 24 years old and traveling the world with dad would have been a non starter. I get, I mean, a lot of times players will say, well, you know, my, my parents understand me like no one else. They know what buttons to push. Can you explain, well, we see this on the men's side too with Sitsipas. We see it obviously with Kennan. We've seen it, you know, with player after player through the years. Explain the dynamic and the appeal of having mom or dad as your coach because it still mystifies me. I didn't have it, John, and it doesn't appeal to me. So I'm not sure I could answer that for you. <laughs> I mean, I guess, I mean, early on, certainly, you you know, your parents are the first support system that you kind of have. And, and in tennis as an individual sport, it's just sort of how it works. Even if, you know, you're traveling and playing tournaments, you're playing doubles, you are an individual. There's no team. So your parents are part of your team kind of from the beginning. And even if they're not your coach, they are handling whatever business side, they're handling whatever you know, travel arrangements, logistics, you know, scheduling, helping with all that. And, and, you know, with any coach that you have at a given point in time, your parents are sort of the first part of the team. So from that standpoint, they're always there. Now, the whole re coaching relationship on top of it, you know, that can be challenging. And, and I think for parents who are able to navigate it, you know, I think a bit of, a little bit of, of Caroline Wozniacki and her dad. You know, I mean, obviously, you know, they had to have gone through, you know, some of some of what they needed to in their relationship, the evolution of it um, as well. Um, they managed at times to, you know, have her dad back off and, and have her have other coaching and still maintain a good relationship. And we didn't really see any craziness from it, whatever it might have happened, you know, behind closed doors. So I think there are some examples, but it takes a really strong parent who's clear. It takes, I think, a real clarity in terms of the roles. I personally believe you've got to have at some point the ability to separate. I mean, when is dad there and when is it coach? Mm -hmm. And sometimes you just need dad more uh, and vice versa. And so, you know, that again is part of that personal relationship that is incredibly tough, you know, to navigate. I, I mean, I, my hat's off to what they've already done, uh, Sophia Cannon and, and her dad up to this point. Yeah, no, I mean, I think the flip side is like, whether it's the Williams sisters, which obviously is a different dynamic with two of them, but you know, Kenan won a major, so can't, can't, they had to be doing something right. So I, I don't, um, it's, it's just a, a dynamic I've never fully grasped. Um, all right, let me ask you, you mentioned, um, you mentioned Svitolina, Mugu's another champion, past champion, who seems to be playing pretty well. The, the, yeah, you know, I overlooked Muguruza. You know, I'm, I'm kind of looking for some good things from her here. Mm -hmm. 
Prime. Yeah, I think she could leader. be a good challenger. Mm -hmm. who, uh, who else you got? Did anyone anyone uh, leaving New York Im impress you as someone when we switch over? I mean, yeah, as of now, I, I don't know if it's going to stand. I mean, Serena's in the draw. Right. Um, any, you know, any three-time champion gets uh, a mention no matter what. Any, anyone else? No, I mean, it's, you know, it's interesting. It's, it's the players – you know, somebody, you know, like, like Vika Azarenka, who's been playing so well. And, but, you know, maybe not the clay, you know, being her surface, not being ideal. Um, that's certainly going to come into play. Uh, but, you know, she could be dangerous just from the, the mental and, and from her mindset right now. Um, you know, you look at Jennifer Brady, who was playing so well to get to the semis, right? This is a whole different kind of ball game, transitioning to the clay, um, you know, trying to play and, and figure out her game on the surface um, without the same kind of experience. So I think that's going to be tough for her. But, you know, these are players who certainly I'll be looking to see how they do, how they kind of start out because they are the informed, you know, informed players. But I think Muguruza, Garbina Muguruza could be, you know, probably one of the bigger challengers, um, you know, in terms of, of this French Open. Not sure where Serena's going to be. She had those Achilles issues um, at the end of New York. Was tough to tell how bad it was. This isn't the surface you want to be having Achilles issues on. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know how, how she's going to come in feeling, but uh, it'll be a tough transition for, for some players. All right, last question. We're going to be spending a lot of time together, so we, we can't empty the bucket here. Um, That's true. Save well, some. Exactly. But, how, you know, I, I mean, I think a lot of us, you know, we're all, we're all going through this year differently, and we all have different challenges and different uh, sort of risk thresholds. Have you asked yourself – have you tried to put yourself in, in, you know, the position of an athlete? Have you, have you asked yourself how as a player you would be handling and navigating this year? Yeah, I mean, I can put myself in the position of an athlete. <laughs> no, I, no, when when I was playing, if I were going through this, here's how I would react. I mean, have you tried to? Uh, I mean, I really, I, I will be honest. I have not tried to put myself in that place only because, I mean, it's, I mean, goodness, you know, all bets are off. You didn't even know what tournaments were going to be played until, you know, we got into July, even, you know, like, are, are we really going to be able to start tournaments? And, and everybody's kind of, you know, catchers catch can trying to do exhibition events, trying to, you know, playing team tennis, which was a great, you know, sort of three weeks of the summer. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's been tough to kind of imagine that mindset. Because as a player, you know, we were so used to just knowing we've got a tournament. I mean, even for me, knowing okay, next month I got this plan, month after I got this plan. Literally, you knew what you were doing, what you were traveling to, what was on the, what was on the, on the schedule. All of a sudden, nothing. I mean, I literally went through a little like weird withdrawal because I had no travel plan and I was, I'm retired. So imagine, you know, players, they're in the thick of it. And that is a huge shift just in your mindset. What do you do? What do you have time to do? I mean, it, it's crazy, you know, to think about that and, and, you know, not feel useless in some ways because you're not able to get back and play. And that's normally, you know, what you're used to doing. Um, and, you know, so do you go back to school? Do you use three or four months to get a degree, to get a certification? Like, I mean, <laughs> like those would be the thoughts for some players trying to figure out how to maximize this time. Um, and then at the same, at the same in the same mindset, trying to maybe stay physically fit and in shape, but you're still having to think about COVID and you're still having to think about, you know, the practicalities of that. Can you have your coach with you to do this? Can you have your fitness person? You know, some players didn't see their coach for months, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of in person. So just incredible challenges that players have never had to go through in a totally different way. And, you know, kudos to, to those who, we've seen have just worked through it and have just adjusted. You know, that's what tennis players do. At the end of the day, we got to adjust. And so I think every player has that mindset. I'm going to just do what I have to do based on circumstances. That's a great point. I mean, what, what crystallized it for me, I talked to one player and they said, man, if I were playing now, I'd be playing everything. Like I'm a tennis player. I would just need the structure. I'd be entering all these events. And I talked to another player who was like, 
I'd be so scared. It would be so stressful to go through customs and all these rules in different countries. I'd just say the hell with it. I'm seeing Australia. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. it, it really hit home though, how much these players are really having to, it's like you said, the, the adjustments are really essential and, and really impressive. So it's yeah. uh, crazy. Well, and what's, what is your individual tolerance, mm -hmm. you know, for it? Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, you have some players they are very routine, okay? For them to be comfortable, they like to have this in place and that in place. They had like to have had this amount of time doing X, Y, and Z, and nobody really had that. So yes, you adjust, but what are you comfortable with? And how much adjustment do you feel you need to make when things are still so uncertain or they were still so, so uncertain, um, you know, at that point, especially. So it's been interesting to see kind of how different everybody's approached it. That's such a good point, and then we'll stop. But like these players who want like the same ball for every point, and my towel's got to be folded in this direction. Now you say, "Oh yeah, you're going to uh, be off for six months, and the French Open is going to start the last week of September." Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, good, good luck. Yeah, exactly. good luck being comfortable. And then what about a couple of times where you saw the player use the wrong towel? Like, how did you not just self-destruct? How could you even finish playing the match after that? <laughs> so there's yeah. a lot of adjustments. <laughs> um, all right. Speaking of adjustments, go uh, go pack. Safe travel. I'll see you. Uh, oh, packing. Out of the ocean. I need help with the packing, John. It's been a while you to go overseas. Now Paris is going to be cold. I mean, right. I'm 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 not. I'm struggling. Champions <laughs> of the best. You're a champion. <laughs> um, this is great. I'll, this is uh, fine. We got a lot more to talk about. I'll uh, I'll see you in a studio in about 48 hours. See you on the other side. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks to Chanda for spending some time before taking off for Paris. Uh, again, she will be part of the Tennis Channel team that starts coverage on Sunday, Sunday the 27th, 5 a.m. Eastern. But uh, Tennis Channel will have you first ball to last uh, from Roland Garros. Those last balls will go uh, into the night now that we have uh, lights and a roof. Um, transition to ask you a trivia question. What kind of racket did Chanda Rubin use for most of her top 10 career? And the answer is Wilson, which brings us here. Exciting news for uh, Beyond the Baseline fans and listeners. We are joining with Wilson to present the latest and greatest pro staff, the V13. And we have an exclusive offer for our listeners. If you order this super fantastic new racket from Wilson, Use Beyond the Baseline code BAGTHEBAG, B-A-G-T-H-E-B-A-G, bag the bag, and get an exclusive gift with purchase. You'll get a red, white, and blue Wilson brand duffel with your purchase. Visit wilson.com pro staff to use the code BAGTHEBAG to purchase. Hurry up. Supplies are limited. It's a $50 value gift with purchase. Again, buy a Wilson racket, get a bag. If you use bag the bag, our promo code Wilson, of course, sponsors a good many players out there. And at one point they sponsored our guest, Chanda Rubin. Uh, thanks to Wilson, our tennis themed sponsor this week. Uh, Jamie Lasanti, we thank you as well, as always, for your uh, behind the scenes mastery. Um, I'll bring you in now to ask a simple question. Are you ready for our Third major of 2020, even though uh, here we are in late September. I'm ready. Uh, the first one was uh, long anticipated. We really waited for that uh, U.S. Open, you know, after that long layoff. And we talked about it for weeks and weeks on this podcast. And you know what? It actually went pretty well. We, we had champions. You know, we had uh, new champions and we had people um, you know, add on to their major titles and uh, all things considered, I thought the USTA did a really good job. So now we transition to this, as you say, uh, you know, pumpkin spice, strange Roland Garros uh, in the middle of September and October. And it's going to be weird. I think, um, you know, I think as, as Chanda said, the fact that there's some traveling involved because a lot of the same players that we saw in New York are going to be in Paris for the French Open. I think the idea of traveling, which used to be so natural for, for tennis and players on the tour, is now going to be just one of the many changes that these players are going to have to deal with um, you know, as they transition to the clay. I, I think you're exactly right. I think uh, we, we have this quick turnaround in, in a lot of ways. One of them is the travel. One of them is the surface. One of them is another big event. 
I think we should give uh, a little bit more time to uh, the USTA to take a victory lap for everything we had been discussing. I mean, you're right, Jamie, for months and months and months. I mean, literally starting in March with the pandemic, we were talking about the U.S. Open. Would it move to Indian Wells? Open doors, closed doors, fans, no fans. Where does ESPN figure into this? What would happen if players got sick? Asterisks. None of that really came to pass. I mean, at, at the end of the day, it was a uh, a, a strange but uh, thoroughly successful major tournament, as you say. Uh, a new winner on the men's side, but not a fluke. You know, a, a guy who'd been knocking on the door for the past few years. We have Naomi Osaka sort of solidifying her position atop the sport with her third major in, in 24 months, and we moved on. So I, I feel like because the uh, suddenly after that lull, we now have all this acceleration towards the clay uh the, the USDA probably didn't come in for enough credit so we uh we extend that and yeah I mean this is going to be this is going to be interesting and the good news for the French Open is as you say first of all it's in Europe so a lot of the players will have um I would say fewer travel complications uh there is a model they now have the the U.S. Open to sort of steal some best practices from maybe appropriate um but the flip side is Rates are not going down in Paris, and already there are um, there reports there were some positive tests that came out of the qualifying draw. There is not a bubble, but the players are confined to two hotels, but there seem to be some inconsistencies. Uh, it's going to be a challenge. And I think, um, you know, again, the, the good news is we have proof. We have proof of concept that tennis can pull this off. And the U.S. Open, uh, again, I think, probably encouraged the French Federation, heck, yes, we can do this. But whether it's the, the fans in the stands, which as you and I are recording this, it is still expected 5,000 fans a day, which, which seems uh, somewhat inconsistent with the, the COVID numbers and some of the other government protocols. It's a different time of year. And this is a, you know, this, this is a, a fast-moving, ever-changing COVID landscape. So um, I, I think we, we have our usual mix of, happiness that there's tennis again and players can start earning prize money and we can get back to talking about uh, results and forehands and backhands but I, I do think there is trepidation uh, much as there was four weeks ago before the U.S. Open so um, let, let me ask you uh, let me ask you sort of the, the big picture question I asked to Chanda and you can accept or reject but is it possible the favorite going in on the women's side is almost a heavier favorite than the, than the men's? It's a big, bold statement, but I, I hear you and I, I see where you're coming from only because of the kind of weirdness that we're experiencing heading into this French Open. It's not, um, you know, obviously you talk about COVID and, and the change in the calendar for this year. And for me, the biggest thing is that clay was always snuck into this part of the season. You know, it was always a quick transition. I think that back in, you know, April, May, whenever it was, where the French Open kind of stamped their place in on the calendar in September, I don't think we really knew how, what would play out before that, right? And now that we're here, we realize that there was not the typical clay court season you know, beforehand, before the French Open that we've normally had. So a lot of these players have not had that time to prepare unless they took off and decided to skip the U.S. Open and, you know, only prepare for the French and, and prepare for the clay. So uh, for me, it's, it really depends on, on the player. And, and, you know, for Halep, obviously she was not at the U.S. Open. She is, you know, a, a natural clay quarter in a lot of ways. She has a ton of clay court titles and, of course, has already won in Paris, if not, you know, been a semifinalist. And it's very, um, for me, it's very important that somebody who has a lot of clay experience and who just feels comfortable on the surface, I feel like we'll have the biggest advantage here, you know, because someone who's, who's not or someone who's coming from the hard courts in New York are is going to feel a little rushed in preparation for this. So I'm, I'm sort of with you uh, when you think about it from that respect. I mean, um, it, when you think about who has the, the most natural ability and the most experience and, and comfort on the clay, um, it's definitely Halep and of course Nadal. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the, the clay court season was, was truncated in terms of time. We, we only had, uh, the players were only playing one tune-up event, which was in most cases was Rome. 
it's also a strange clay court season in that it's a different time of year. And I think one thing we're going to be talking a lot about, uh, certainly on Tennis Channel on the broadcast, is the fact that, uh, you know, the, the clay the clay of October ain't the clay of, of May. And the conditions are going to be much different. It's going to be wetter. It's going to be colder. It's going to be, you know, in, in theory, the, the fact that we're going to have some night matches are going to change things. It's going to get darker. The sun's going to go down you know, more than two hours, the sunset is more than two hours earlier on October 1st than it is on June 1st in Europe. So I think these conditions are really going to be different. I mean, at some level, it's, it's clay court tennis and clay is clay and Rafa is Rafa. And he knows, as, as Chad and I were talking about, he knows the court, which I think is an advantage we don't talk about enough. It's got to be a huge deal to know that six of your seven matches are going to get played on the same court where you've played more than a hundred times and you know the dimensions and you know how much space there is and you know the path from the locker room. I think that's something that we uh, don't talk about enough as a built-in advantage for the stars. But I do think players are going to have to make adjustments. Then again, they have been making adjustments uh, all year. Let me, let, me ask you, um, let me ask you a two-part question, which we are, are told not to do, but I will piggyback two questions. Uh, <laughs> Rafa or Novak, who do you like? And do you see anyone outside the big three? Yeah, um, I'll, I'll, I'll take the first one, I guess. Uh, I, I think, like I said, kind of building off what I, I mentioned earlier, I think Nadal has the advantage. Um, there are so many things mentally, physically, uh, that Djokovic is dealing with coming off the U.S. Open and I know that he, you know, made the, the quick transition to clay and, and won, and that was really remarkable. But, but for me, um, I, I just think that this is, you know, as usual, Nadal's tournament to lose. So I'm going to go there and, and say that. And I think Dominic Team, you know, had his spotlight. And while I do expect him to play deep into the, the tournament, um, I think it's going to be really hard for him to pose back-to-back championships here and and take two titles as quick as as he did but i think we need to remember too that he's he's done really well um so it it'll be tough given um just the weight mentally of of the circumstances and outside of him i i don't know uh i think it'd be we'd be picking from the same straws as we would in in any other year in terms of someone outside the big three i mean it would have to mean that um the, the road would be cleared in terms of Rafa losing, um, you know, up, being upset at some point. So um, I'm, I'm sticking with Nadal and uh, we'll see what happens with, with some of the other guys. Um, we have to disagree at some point, but, um, <laughs> but this will not be the point. No, I think you're right about Rafa. I mean, I think uh, best of three versus best of five in days off and sort of the usual reasons. But I think, Ch- Chan to put it nicely, just out of respect, you have to make him the favorite. Let's be clear that we're talking about uh, when we say big three now, obviously Federer is, is not playing. We are talking okay. about, uh, we, just to be clear, we're talking about the top three seeds, which are Nadal Djokovic and, um, and Dominic Thiem, who now comes in for the first time as a former Grand Slam, you know, as, as a Grand Slam champion. I mean, I think that, I think that makes a difference. Um, I do think that the other thing that, I, I think two things. One of them is I think there's a big difference entering a tournament. If you're one of the other guys, even Dominic Team, I think it's a difference between having both Nadal and Djokovic in the draw and one of them. I mean, I think when Djokovic went out of the U.S. Open, everybody's like, holy cow, this is a huge opportunity. I think it's a much different mentality to have both those guys to sort of have to, you know, k- kill the two-headed beast. And the other thing, too, is, boy, you look at other candidates and just kind of go down the list. And, you know, Medvedev, as, as we were talking about, Medvedev's never won a match at the French Open. Neither is Andre Rublev, by the way. Sitsipas comes in with with his head further in the clouds after that U.S. Open debacle. Zverev is coming off a, a seven six and a fifth loss in a major final when he was serving for uh, serving for the title. Right. I, I just think some some of it is the the excellence of Nadal, the excellence of Djokovic, this new, you know, the, the sort of the breakthrough of team. But let's not forget this guy uh, has, has won twelve matches in Roland Garros over the last two years, including a takedown of Djokovic, and then. Man, is there a long staircase down to that next uh, level. I, I would just be absolutely stunned, even in this year, even with fall, fall clay court tennis, every variable. I would be astounded if someone other than what we're now calling the, the Roland Garros Big Three takes the title. So you, right. you and I are in, uh, in, in firm agreement. 
yeah, I, I will say though that um, you know, it, I think what it will take is not only you know a poor, poor performance from Nadal, but we talked about this heading into the U.S. Open that there are players who are going to have to um, going to feel like these tournaments this year with players players sitting out for the year, certain certain people not there because of injury or whatnot. Um, as as a, just such a big opportunity, you know, and they've really taken the time mm-hmm. off to perfect their game and, and gain confidence. And I think where those wild cards would come in. And I think on clay, sometimes those wild cards are even more prevalent. So I agree. I, I think it's going to take a lot to take down uh, Rafa. But if any year, um, any time of the year was, was made for it, I think um, it's going to be this time. It's really funny because clay used to be, you know, the French Open used to have these sort of these fluky winners. And if, if there were a one-time major winner, odds exactly. were good. It was on clay. Andres Gomez and Gaston Gaudio and Juan Carlos Ferrero. He's like, boy, I just go down the list. Um, it used to also be the event where this was the hole in the resume of Jimmy Connors and McEnroe and Sampras and, you know, Boris Becker. This was the event that uh, a, a lot of towering players could never win. Now it's um, – in some ways, it's become the most formful of the majors, thanks thanks largely to Nadal. But um, yeah, usually we think of the, the French Open as a wide open event, and boy, especially on the men's side, I, three three man race. Um, let let me ask you one more question about that, which is, to to what extent? I was I was surprised by the answer that the U.S. Open yielded, but to to what extent do you feel like? these events are getting diluted because of the absence of stars. Obviously here, most of them are on the women's side, but Barty, the defending champion, Osaka, who of course just won the previous major, Bianca Andreescu, you know, Maria Sharapova, who's won this multiple times, is retired. How much does the field matter to you, especially on the women's side? Yeah, I think when you, you, you start going down that list, you're like, wow, we're really missing a lot here. You know, especially as you say, defending champions, and uh, you know the last major champion. I mean, that's a lot of a lot of big names out of this tournament. But I think um, as the U.S. Open kind of showed us, I don't think we were talking about Victoria Azarenka ahead of the U.S. Open as a contender, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that was what made that tournament so cool, and what makes this time so interesting, and why I don't think you necessarily need that, you know, full slate of seeds one to 10, you know, all there uh, to make it a good tournament because Vika's a, a major champion, but she hasn't been in the conversation a lot. And, uh, you know, she, she pushed herself into that at the U.S. Open. And, you know, now she's going to be one of the big names here after, uh, you know, doing so well in New York. So for me, I think while on paper it may seem deflated, I think when you start seeing the tennis, you start seeing the competition, and then all of a sudden start seeing names that maybe you haven't seen in a while, or you see young names finally getting the attention or the, the stringing the wins together that they've been trying to. I think that's sort of what makes this sport fun. Um, it always has been, but uh, even more so now that there's there's a few more holes with people absent. I think it, it just makes it more exciting. So I'm, I'm all for it. I'm not uh, counting out this tournament because of uh, that withdrawal list. I think you're right, and I'll, I'll go a step further, which is I, I think this is instructive for what's going to happen in the next, whatever it is, five years when these three titans on the men's side and Serena Williams presumably retire, which right. is there will be hand-wringing and it won't feel the same and asterisks and who's in the draw. And then, you know what? You play a few rounds and it's, boy, Jen Brady's really improved and Vika's back to 2013 Vika. And players will emerge, and there will be upsets, and there will be controversies. And you know, Sonia had you know, so Sonia had to lose love and love. And we're talking about that, like the uh, the plot goes on. It's it's like soap opera stars that uh, get get written out of the show. Um, the plot continues, and players will be missed. And it's a pity that Naomi Osaka and Ash Barty and uh, Bianca Andreescu won't be here, but you know, we'll have results, we'll have wins, we'll have losses, we'll have controversy, we'll have players emerge, we'll have disappointments. And I think you're absolutely right that they're, they're still going to give out these trophies at the end of the tournament. And as long as that's the case, we'll find other storylines, um, whether it's the, the absence of the players at the French Open or sort of big picture, the absence of 80 majors worth of winners uh, 
among four players that aren't going to be here probably five years from now. So yeah, and um, we talked so much about the the asterisk right before the U.S. Open. I don't think you know anybody is putting an asterisk next to Dominic Team or Naomi Osaka's win. I mean, I I just don't see how you can. No, and it, we we do this all the time. You know, Marion Bartoli wins Wimbledon and doesn't have to beat a top ten. I mean, we we and you know what. It lasts a uh, pretty pretty short shelf life, pretty short half life on the uh, on the asterisk. I think I think you're absolutely right. No one's going to look back and say, "Well, you know, I don't even count 2020." Um, it wasn't conventional, but um, I, I think that was a uh, that was largely a, a manufactured discussion anyway. <laughs> and I think I think you're absolutely right. I mean, that no, nobody for, for everything that was said about the 2020 U.S. Open, I didn't hear a single person say Naomi. I, I didn't hear two things. I didn't hear anyone say you know what, we really shouldn't have done that. Bad idea. We, we should have, uh, you know, we, we should have just bailed and said, see you in 2021. I didn't hear anyone say that. And I didn't hear anyone say, yeah, you know, Naomi Osaka won, but it doesn't really count. So uh, onward we go. So, you know, I, I think we're all similar drill, at least for me anyway. And I don't, I don't know if you agree. Similar mix of emotions. Thrilled there's a French Open. Thrilled that uh, we're going to get three of the four majors played this year, but um, it's uh, it's going to be tough and it's going to be a, a challenge. And there are a lot of uncertainties. And it's you know it's this is not the NBA bubble. I mean, this is there. There's going to be some uh, there are going to be some controversies. There are going to be some double standards. There are going to be some angry players. And you just hope that. Uh, everyone stays relatively healthy and that ultimately sort of uh, common sense wins out. But um, I, I leave for this major, and I don't know if you feel the same way here, Jamie. Um, I'm going to leave in a few hours and it's with uh, guarded optimism, optimism, but uh, not unfettered. So I think you're in a, a much different position than all of us. So, uh, you know, we, we wish you safe travels and safe two weeks there. Um, going to be interesting going to be interesting um all right well let's check you know we can we can check in mid-tournament um again i'll be filing periodically jamie you and i will talk uh, periodically during the tournament tennis channel will be there every single day and uh you know let's let's see if we can if we replicate uh the success of the 2020 us open at the 2020 rolling garros we'll all be doing pretty well here all right. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks, as always. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for the guest sessions. Thanks to Chanda. Thanks to Wilson Rackets, our tennis team sponsor. Uh, we'll do it again next week from the other side of the ocean. Meanwhile, uh, enjoy the first few rounds of Rolling Garros, everyone, and uh, stay safe.